0: Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, Died, And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And she said, "'See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law.' But Ruth said, "'Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried.'" May the Lord do so to me and more, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, because the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. Call me Mara. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, the the book of Ruth is only four chapters long, but it is an incredible short story. The characters face peril. They experience suffering and overwhelming grief. And yet, if you know the story, if you've studied it or or read it um, or read about it, you know that it is ultimately a story of redemption and redeeming love and God's faithfulness. There are multiple heroes in this story, but ultimately God is the ultimate hero over it. And we look even to Jesus in this book. And the book of Ruth points us to the faithfulness of God in broken places. I mean, already we're introduced to the brokenness in the story and, and, and the ways in which the people in this story are, are, are facing suffering. And I want you to think about in your own life as we begin this, this series and as we begin this passage today, uh, some of you suffered greatly in the last 12 months. Some of you have suffered greatly in life in general. And this is where we live. And it's important for believers to know where they live and what place they they live in. We were created for things to be right, for things to be just, for things to be in right relationship with God and with others. But ever since Genesis 3 and man's rebellion against God, we do not live in that place where everything is fit together in perfect harmony. You know that. We live on the other side of the fall. We live in the shadowlands, as C.S. Lewis says. and, And our lives are often, even the best lives, even when you have been enormously blessed, there are seasons and times of difficulty and suffering. And if you don't know where to place your life in God's grand story, at times it can feel as if God hates you instead of loves you because we suffer in this life. This short story is strategic in the true story of God, the gospel. Ruth is the great grandmother of David, and ultimately a great grandmother in the genealogy of Jesus. She's Jesus' great, 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 you know, keep going grandmother. How cool is that? Ruth. Ruth, the Moabite, a pagan woman outside of the promises of God enters into the people of God. Ruth, the outsider, Ruth, the immigrant, Ruth, the spiritual outsider becomes a key and a pivotal person in the story that God is telling about his redeeming love. And today, as we follow uh, three aspects of this long chapter, uh, there's three parts to the story. There is the sojourn, which is the beginning. There is the return, and then there's the arrival. The sojourn, the return, and the arrival. First, the sojourn. The story begins by the author saying, in the days when the judges ruled. And in the Old Testament, that's kind of like saying it was a dark and stormy night. (laughs) It's not good. This is bad. This is a day when judges ruled. And in that same time, we'll explain what that means more in just a second. There was a famine in the land. And there's huge Common themes in, Ru- in the book of Ruth that are like uh, huge archetypes in the entire Old Testament. Famine is a huge archetype in-, in the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. A barrenness is. Having to sojourn is. Uh, think of how many times the people of God had to sojourn, including Jesus uh, himself and his family in Bethlehem, but also later in Egypt. And of course, suffering and great loss. There's a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. They are from Bethlehem in Judah. That's the southern part of Israel. And the period of the judges was this dark and horrible and violent time. Uh, and it was before the time that kings were raised up for the people of God, right? So later, because Ruth, as you know, is the great-grandmother of David, the second king of Israel. And a refrain throughout the book of Judges. In, in, in our Bible, in the Protestant Bible, uh, in, the, in the Christian Bible, actually, uh, you have Ruth following Judges. But in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth follows Proverbs, and they both make sense, uh, one sort of more chronologically and the other sort of uh, in in, in a sense that Ruth is very much like a proverb because she is filled with so much wisdom. A refrain in the book of Judges throughout it is this. There was no king in Israel, and if you've read your Bible, you may know where this is headed, and everyone did what was right. In his own eyes, that's what was going on. Ever since the fall, in a sense, (laughs) there's been no king in Israel, and everyone is doing right in his and her own eyes. And there's a fam a famine. Once again, a common theme throughout the Bible and an archetype in in Bethlehem, which is ironic because the word Bethlehem. If you what does it mean? If you know your Hebrew, (laughs) many of us don't. But it's it's house of bread. So there's irony. So because of the famine, Elimelech and his wife Naomi, along with their two sons, went on a sojourn to Moab, which is modern-day Jordan. It's not that far away in today's standards. It's only a two-hour drive. But imagine how long that would take to uh, to get if you were in caravan or, or hiking or walking. And so... This idea of sojourning, another, a common theme throughout the Old Testament, the people of God and other people are immigrants and sojourning, uh, it's meant to be a temporary stay. They end up staying there like 10 years, but to sojourn was longer than like a week's vacation it would often mean like you would be there temporarily, but it could be a very, very long time and you would be out and away from your own family, your own security, your own people, your own resources, And you would have to depend on the loving kindness and goodness of the community where you were sojourning. The names of Naomi's sons are interesting. One is Malon, which means sickness, and the other is Chilion, which means wasting or weakness. So can you imagine, you know, you're in line at Target and you see these two little kids and you say to Naomi, like, oh, you've got two adorable children. Like, what are their names? This one is sickness and this one is weakness. Ah, (laughs) this one's wimpy and this one's wheezy. (laughs) They're at soccer games like you can do it. Weakness Way to go. You can do it. Wheezy. Keep it up. Uh, In all likelihood, these are not their given names. Who would name their children? I mean, this would require trauma therapy for the rest of your life if you were named Wimpy and Wheezy. But in all likelihood, that's not their given names, but the names that are assigned to them after the story. As you see throughout the book of Ruth, these names are super important and people are open to changing names. Like Naomi says, no, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. So in likelihood after their deaths, Naomi begins to call them weakness and sickness. Naomi, interestingly, means pleasant or sweet, kind of like uh, where I grew up in in the southern parts of the United States, like where people call each other sweetie pie and baby cakes. Like, this is, she is meant to be called pleasant uh, or sweet and that's her given name. They fled to Moab temporarily, but they were there like I said at least 10 years. And the author quickly tells us that Naomi's husband died and that her two sons married Moabite women. This would not be good for an Israelite. This is marrying outside outside of your people and and while they were not commanded to not marry uh, intermingle or marry among the Moabites they were commanded not to among the Canaanites and they're very similar these are they, they worship pagan gods for example and then it tells us that after these sons marry these two outsiders Oprah and Ruth that the sons die and the author says she Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband and This is an important part that we need help in interpreting. On the one hand, all of us can read this story from a human perspective and enter into empathy and sympathy and be touched by it. This lady, Naomi, has to flee her homeland because of a famine, and she becomes a refugee. And when she gets there, her husband dies, and then her two sons. And so from a human perspective, everyone can empathize. To lose a spouse is horrible, and some of you in this room have lost spouses this year. To lose a spouse is a horrible grief, but to lose children, even more so, the greatest of losses for most of us is the idea of losing a child, and she has lost her only two sons, And so we can enter the story and feel the loss, but we won't fully understand her loss. Of course, we do from the human perspective, but there's an even greater loss because in this culture, in the ancient Near East, there is an extreme form of patriarchy. And that is exactly the culture she's living in. And while we can't fully relate to it in light of the fact that we still deal with, of course, sexism and misogyny in our own culture in our own day, This is an extreme form of patriarchy, but is still practiced, you know, throughout parts of the world, Uh, think the Middle East. In this culture, men had all the power, all the privileges, and women had very little. And under this system, women would only find their value and their dignity in relationship to the men in their life. If you're a daughter, you would find your value in in your father. If you are married, you find your value in your husband. And then there is immediately pressure from your husband and your in-laws and perhaps your own parents to produce not only children, but heirs, sons, firstborn sons. Very little power, very little security. It was a wife's obligation to give her husband children and especially sons. So imagine the opportunities there were to take advantage of women in this culture. And now, Naomi is not only experiencing the the emotional loss of losing a husband and her only two children, she is living in this situation and system where she has incredible vulnerabilities. Financially, she's destitute. Socially, she's destitute. Her husband is dead. Her sons are dead. Her kids have married outsiders, foreigners, and they're refugees. And if you know anything about refugees, uh, they're often thrown, uh, you know, they go and escape their homeland for some reason, and they end up leaving uh, the frying pan uh, for the fire, and things get even worse. And that's exactly what's happened to Naomi. And so... Here she is with her two daughter-in-laws, they are barren also, which only exacerbates her pain and suffering. 10 years and there's no mention of children for either of them. So if we're going to understand our own lives, if we're going to be able to minister to others, the book of Ruth is such an important part as we look at this story of suffering. We must understand that suffering is real and that the people of God go through suffering, and, and we have to learn how to em- embrace that, but also to learn to have faith in the midst of it. The next thing that we see is the return there's the sojourn, then there is the return in verses 6 through 18. In verse 6, we learn that God had visited his people, and by that, what the author means is that the famine was over, and oftentimes in the Old Testament, when it would say that God had visited a people and that brought visitation upon them, it often meant judgment, but in this instance, it means blessing, that God has removed the famine, and so it is time for them to go home. And as they're on their way back to Judah from Jordan, from Moab, somewhere along the journey back, Naomi stops and begs her daughter-in-laws to go back to Moab. It literally says, go back to your mother's home, which is never used except in one other instance throughout the Bible. Go back to the house of your mother. Naomi's sincere. Her love for Orpah and Ruth is sincere. She wants what's best for them practically. I've been reading a great commentary uh, on the book of Ruth by Carolyn Custis James. It's called Finding God in the Margins. It's, it's beautifully written. And she says this, Prospects of marriage in Bethlehem would have been nil for a pagan girl who's certifiably barren. Think of this. So as you think about, if you've studied Ruth before, you wonder, like, is she really being for real? And she's all alone. She's destitute. Is she really encouraging them to go back? And she's thinking of their practical situation and saying, life will be horrible for them in Israel. No one's going to marry them. Our lives depend on the men in our lives. Moab meant home, she writes, family and male protection, and possibly in the possibility of a second marriage. Which is more likely for them to be remarried? Moab, their home, or Israel, where they would be outsiders, Even so, after 10 years of marriage and no child to show for it, the best they could hope for was to become an extra set of hands in a polygamous marriage as wife number two or three. That was their best hope back in Moab. Naomi, I don't think, is testing their loyalty. She has their best interest at heart. She reasons with them. And then they all gather and they weep together bitterly as she is expressing this profound loss. And then and then uh, they both say, no, we're going to your people. We will go with your people. And then Naomi pleads again and tells them she won't have any sons to give them, like even if I get pregnant right now, she says, and, and trying to fulfill the liverite law, the, 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 the Levi, like you must provide uh, children. I, instead, she says, no, like think about it. Like I'll be, uh, even if I had kids now, you're way too old, it won't work. It's silly talk. And she pleads with him to go home. And then eventually Orpa does just that. And then Naomi says something very honest and sad in verses 13 through 14. No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. That the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but, what, Ruth clung to her. At this part of the story, we find Naomi in a place that maybe many of you can relate. It is a dark night of the soul. Naomi is struggling, much like her great-grandson, King David, much like Job. We find her knowing that God is great, God is sovereign, but doubting to believe that God is good. Many of you can relate. You have faith in God. You have faith in Jesus. You believe he has the power to save. You have the the beliefs he has the power to raise people from the dead. You know he rose from the dead, that he created all things. But you often doubt his goodness because of your own circumstances. And that's understandable. David got there many times. He penned the very words that Jesus cried out on the cross. My God, why have you forsaken me? Job, of course, you know, had a dark night of of the soul and then had all these preachers stand around him and say, you know, what's your problem, Job? You know, but look at his circumstances. Naomi is struggling. She believes that God counts her as an enemy, that he has come out against her. Imagine that. Some of you don't have to imagine. You feel as if that's true for you. She believes God counts her as an enemy instead of a friend. That's what she believes. And I love that the Bible doesn't whitewash these stories out of its scripture. Don't you love it? If you were creating a religion from scratch, if you're just creating a religion to make God look good or to make God's people look good, you wouldn't include about 90% of the crazy stories uh, in the Old Testament that we read about. Because I, I tell you what, the heroes of the Old Testament are often not very heroic. Let this lament from Naomi open the door for you to be honest about your own emotions with God. He is sovereign and he already knows your heart and your mind even before you open your mouth or shed a tear and express your displeasure. Have you been there? Angry at God. Believing him to be God, believing him to be great? doubting his goodness. Are you there right now? God can handle your honest emotions. But know this, Naomi will come to know it as well. God is not just great, he is also good. After this, Orpah kisses Naomi and returns to her mother's house. Some preachers are tempted to paint her in a bad light and say, look, she had no faith. I see nothing wrong with what she did, practically speaking. She went home to her people. But Ruth, a true heroine of this story and of the Bible, she clings. She clings to Naomi. And, and it's the same kind of language that we see in Genesis when it talks about a father, uh, or a, a husband and a wife should leave their mother and father and cling to one another because they become one flesh. This isn't marriage, of course, but that is the kind of steadfast covenantal love that Ruth is showing to her, to her mother-in-law is an amazing example of God's love towards us. Ruth kisses her, or excuse me, uh, Orpah kisses her and says goodbye and goes back to her people and back to her gods, the pagan gods. But it says, Ruth clung, clung to Naomi. Look, Naomi says, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and gone back to her gods. And here is a pivotal turning point in the story, the conversion of Ruth to the living God, the conversion of Ruth to Yahweh, the conversion of Ruth to God's people. Listen, I want to read it um, because it's so beautiful and it's probably the most well-known part of this book. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. This is often read in weddings. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will be buried. May the Lord do to me, and more, if anything but death parts me from you. This is a covenant. That's what a covenant is. Kill me. May God kill me if I'm not true to this word. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she finally stopped. She said no more. Because she had been preaching it go home, go home, go home. And finally, Ruth got to her. Sinclair Ferguson, the great Scottish preacher and theologian, paraphrasing said this Listen, I have been converted. Ruth is saying, Stop urging me to go back. Did you hear me? I believe in Yahweh, I've been converted. Orpah went back to her people and gods, but Ruth wants God in her life, and Ruth wants God's people in her life, such that they are, and as difficult as they can be. She says, I want the living God, and I want God's people. And I love this. Ruth is standing on her own two feet and chooses for herself what she will do. She will follow Naomi, and she will follow the Lord. And for anyone who thinks that the Bible agrees with patriarchy or teaches it or supports um, uh, this or multiple marriages or a lot of the stuff that we see reported in the Bible, don't you see how thousands of years ago, thousands of years ago, the scriptures are not substantiating this patriarchy. They're subverting it by this heroine of the faith, by raising up a woman uh, in this culture uh, of extreme strength and faith. This is not supporting patriarchy. This is su- supplanting it. She gets a book of the Bible named after. She's literally a grandmother of Jesus. Ruth, the Moabite, not born into the people of God, but by God's grace brought in. Ruth, the immigrant. There's, there really isn't a more marginalized person you can imagine. Ruth, uh, the outsider, a widow, a barren widow. She's as marginalized as anyone can be, and God gives her a book in the Bible and gives her a central place in his story and beautifully shows us what redeeming love of God will do in the life of a strong believer like Ruth. Ruth. Ruth covenants with Naomi, and this is such a beautiful example of chesed, chesed. In the Old Testament, this is another huge theme. God's steadfast covenantal love that will never, ever, ever give up. Where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. When you die, I'm going to die right there. I'm going to be buried right next to you. That is God's chesed, his covenantal love. He will never, ever, ever, ever break his covenant promises. And finally, we find the arrival. Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem with no other details of their journey. uh, They quit arguing, and they're they're back. And of course, as soon as they get back, it's been a decade or more. uh, Crowds are gathering around. It's a small town. People recognize, is that, oh my goodness, is that Naomi? And they come up and say, sweetie pie, where you been? And she says, don't call me that. Don't call me sweet. Do not call me pleasant. Call me what? Mara, call me bitter. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Please don't call me Naomi any longer. I am not pleasant. I'm bitter. Call me bitter. Her name, this new name reflects the state of her heart. She is bitter. And if your name reflected the state of your heart right now, what would it be? If you're really honest, would it be God hates me? She literally believes that God is testifying against her. Like, like think about it, in a court of law, like somebody rising up to give testimony against you. She believes that is her relationship to God. That instead of a friend, he's an enemy. Instead of fullness, there's emptiness. God hates me. Would, would your name be friend like Ruth? That is Ruth's name. That's what it means, friend. Would it be bitter? Would it be angry? Would it be pleasant? What would it be? The end of chapter one leaves us in tension. There's no resolve yet. Like any good story, it's going to leave us there for a bit. Leaves us in the tension that life often leaves us. Faith in God. God is great. God is sovereign. There's a God. But due to the suffering life, we often have a twisted view of God, failing to believe that he's also good. We've all been there, friends. And also like Naomi, she has faith in God, but she has greater faith in other things, she has a greater faith in what the world says is greatness, in a sense. And think about what she's saying. is like, I left full. I left Bethlehem full. Now, this is a strange thing to say. She left empty. She was starving to death in a famine. But she's letting, and I'm not gonna pick on her too much, but let's pick on ourselves, too. She's letting the world define what fullness means for her. woman, You only have value if you have a man in your life. She had a husband and two boys. She had value. She had meaning. If she lived today, she would have Instagrammed their journey to Moab and said, you know, I'm a refugee, but I'm a refugee with this guy. You know, like, I'm still full. Instagram life. Woohoo. It's all good because I got him and him and him. And I'm fashionable as we're doing it. I'm full. But she comes back, she says, empty. Naomi, you don't matter. You don't have a man in your life. You don't matter because you're single. You're, you don't matter because you didn't graduate from the college you thought you'd graduate from. You don't matter because you don't have the power that you thought you'd finally achieve at this point in your life. You don't matter because you don't have grandkids. You don't matter because your kids don't like you. You don't matter because you're You don't have the looks that you once have. You don't matter. You don't matter. You don't matter. We let the world define what matters to us. And Naomi is falling prey to that. And we all fall prey to that. We, we think we're so different than this horrible patriarchal culture, and we are in many ways, but think about all the ways in which we still have such messed up values of what it means to be a man or a woman and, and all the gender stereotypes that we have. And if you think we're past that, we critique it like crazy, but just spend any time on social media. Maybe you shouldn't, but if you do, the, the bikini pictures and the ab pictures and drunken uh, silly pictures from dudes are going to betray us. Toxic masculinity on the one hand and just stereotypical uh, women being objectified on the other. Left and right. Falling prey to these same stupid tropes that we always fall prey to. Maybe we're not that much different. Letting the world define who we are, what beauty actually is. But what I love about Ruth is she's not. She's a broken, fallen sinner like the rest of us. but, But Ruth... Ruth's security is in a different place than Naomi's. It is. Ruth, even though she's the newcomer to the faith, even though she's the Moabite, even though she was a pagan, she is finding her place in the security in a different place than Naomi was. I was a youth pastor before I became a church planter in two different churches. And uh, back in Cincinnati, I was a youth pastor. I had this student in my ministry. He's now like, old with multiple kids. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. But anyway, he, he told this story when we were in student ministry together once about how he had the security blanket. His name's Brad, and Brad had the security blanket that he loved. It was his wubby, right? And he, it was his security. And his parents were really concerned that he was getting too old for wubby because elementary school was about to start. And he wanted to take it to school. And they know he'd get horribly mocked if he took his blanket to school. So they began, they read a book about what to do if your kid loves Wubby too much. And it basically said, what you got to do is every day, cut a chunk of it out, just cut it. And this is terrifying. So they took Wubby and they just began to cut a little piece until the point that he just had a little patch left of Wubby. And then he could put that in his pocket and take it to school. With them. How terrifying. But in a way, life is like that. It takes our securities, the things that we cling to. So I have to have this. This is what life gives me, life and meaning and value. And God begins to cut those things away and say, you can't trust that stupid, smelly blanket that hasn't been washed ever. You have to trust me. Beautifully, uh, Carolyn, uh, this Carolyn Justice James writes this, look at, Look at what Naomi is saying. She says she's empty with Ruth beside her, who, despite her own broken heart, has sacrificed everything to be with her and has vowed to stick with her to the very end. Ruth, who is empty in the world's eyes, she has no value in the world's eyes. Her husband is dead. She's an outsider. She's an immigrant. She is barren. She's already been married. She's not a virgin. She's a widow. She is now a stranger in a strange land. She has suffered as Naomi is suffering, and yet you see in her a fullness and a joy and a security. Have you become bitter? There's a lot to be bitter about right now. Are you empty? There's a lot of reasons to feel empty right now. But God means to restore our faith and our trust in him, even a childlike faith, as Jesus mentioned. And by the way, that's not a a childish faith. That just means a very, just a a simple faith. I trust you. To return to faith like Ruth to say, in spite of my suffering, I can be full. I want God in my life, and I want God's people in my life. You run to Jesus in this moment. How? How do you do it, though? If you really feel this empty, this bad, this barren, this lost, when you really feel like God is rising up to testify against you, where can you go, and how can you get there? If you really believe that God is against you, that he's not your friend, how can you have a change of heart? What can happen? you've got to look to Jesus again and again and again, and here's why. Because Jesus Christ was the man that God did run after in judgment. God did rise up and testify against. Where? He's the son of God. He was perfect. He never sinned. Where did that happen? On the cross it happened. When he cried out from David... My God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, he is dying the death that will redeem you. He's taking the punishment and the stripes that would bring you peace. God is judging him. God is running out against him so that, and I promise you this is true, study it in your Bible and your New Testament as well, that God is making Jesus to suffer on your behalf so that you never, ever will have to because the punishment has been paid, the price has been paid. God paid the sin debt through his son, Jesus, so that like Ruth, we can be friends with God. We can have peace with God, that God is not just great, that he is good, that he's loving and altogether kind. In Romans 5, it says this, Therefore, we now have been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by, from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There's much to be bitter about. There is much loss that we've suffered. But dear friends, know this. Our God is a God not only of greatness, but of great goodness and love and mercy. And that has expressed, been expressed so beautifully and clearly in his son Jesus. Run to him. Cling to him. Read the Gospels this year. Read the Gospel of John. See how beautiful Jesus is. Delight in him again as the lover of your soul. Let's pray. Oh, Fathers, we study Ruth together as a church this year. I just pray, Father, in these coming few weeks that we would extraordinarily experience your redeeming love. That, like Ruth, we might experience a peace and a friendship from you and a confidence and a faith and walk with you into the unknown. May, may you strengthen us in such a way that we won't define our lives on the basis of what the world says about us, but what is true according to what you say, according to what you value, according to what you say matters. Lord, give us hope. Thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.